Okay, well, welcome to this. It's not quite one o'clock, but I'm told we can start. The room is certainly quite full enough. Uh, it's wonderful to see such a big audience here. Um, I know we're going to have a very interesting discussion. What we're going to do is we... I'm not sure we're really going to answer the question, but we're going to talk about some of the issues that perhaps that, that throws up. Um, and uh, then it, we will obviously go over to you for questions um, to the authors. There's a roving microphone, and uh, that will go around at the same at the time to ask questions. So, I'm Judy Ruckelsher. I'm the children's book editor of The Guardian, and so I'm in a very lucky position because I get a chance to read all the books that uh, might look at um, what teenagers are reading and to think about how they've changed over time and how they are not only... Um, providing readers with an extraordinary, I think, particularly at the moment, extraordinary rich experience, uh, literary experience, um, but also how importantly they are brokering some of the big issues in the world um, for those young readers. Uh, uh, one of the things that has always made me proudest, in a way, of working in children's books is the way that children's authors give children an intelligent and thoughtful and very responsible view of some of the issues that they would otherwise only get in a very tabloid newspaper kind of way. And I think this is a, it's a big pressure on the authors. I'm very lucky here today because my authors are Nick Lake, who is the author today of In Darkness, but uh, has written other books and is also uh, the editorial director of HarperCollins Children's Books, and Celia Rees, who today is here to talk about This Is Not Forgiveness, uh, her most recent novel, but has written a great many books, including perhaps most uh, the best known uh, uh, of which is probably Witch Child, which um, was one of those books that became very iconic for all sorts of reasons to do with the quality of it, but also because it had an absolutely stunning jacket cover. Um, and it actually set the tone for what books looked like for quite a long time. Now, it's very interesting when you have one book that can have such a powerful influence. Which Child had this one very beautiful girl uh, 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 image of a girl's face on its cover. And if you look, if you follow the, tra the trajectory of publishing after it, you'll see there were a great many books that looked very similar <laughs> for quite a long time. And I remember Celia saying that the great thing about this cover was that Girls wanted to read this book because it had this lovely girl on the front, but boys wanted it to read it too because she did look pretty drop-dead gorgeous. <laughs> so uh, we're very lucky to have Celia and Nick here, and they are both going to, they're each going to talk about, uh, very briefly introduce these, these two books and read a tiny extract because I don't know whether everybody here will have read them. And then, as I say, we're going to have some conversation, but please, there will be time for you to answer, to ask questions as well. Celia, would you like to go first? Okay, thank you very much. Um, and thank you for that lovely introduction, Julia. Um, this book, This Is Not Forgiveness, is a contemporary thriller. Um, so it's, for me, it, uh, what I've been writing since Witch Child have been mostly historical fiction. So it was a bit of a departure. But before I wrote Witch Child, in the, this looking back to dim distant days of the 1990s, I did write contemporary fiction. And that's how I started. I started by writing contemporary thrillers for older teenagers. I've always, um, I've always written for teenagers, and I've always been interested in, in this kind of young adult that on the cusp between children's and younger teenage books and adult books. I'm very, very interested in that. So when I was, I was, 
I didn't really have an idea for historical fiction. So I wanted to, and I suddenly, I just wanted to write a contemporary book. The reason why, very quickly, is I was watching Jules et Jim, the um, Truffaut film, and I suddenly thought, I don't, I don't know if Nick's like this or other other authors in the audience, I just had this idea, I thought you could update that, you could make it now. So you could have two boys falling in love with the same girl and the complications that would arise from that. So although that book, the, the, the film is set in, was made in the 60s, the actual story is set in about the time of the, um, the First World War. But it seemed timeless to me. It didn't seem to be of its period at all. And I really like that, that you can have the, the, this sort of relationship that could develop between three people doesn't belong to any particular time. So I wanted to set it now. Um, when I first started writing the book, I started with the two young men as friends. But that didn't work, so I made them into brothers. So there are two brothers. One of them is very much... Mr. Every Teenager. He's 17, he's going to, he goes to sixth form college, he's kind of going to uni probably, because that's what everyone else is doing. He hangs out with his mates, he looks at, he eyes the girls, he goes out for, for a drink, he does everything that ordinary boys do in Britain today. But his, the other young man is his brother. Now his brother is very different from him, he's, he's older, he's 23. And he left school when he was 16. He's very kind of anti-intellectual, anti-school, anti-most things. But he left school and he joined the army. And he's a serving soldier. He's, been to, he's served in Iraq. He's served in Afghanistan. He's back now. Um, he was injured in an IED explosion. And he can't go back to the army. He's, his leg was shattered. And, and so, to some degrees, was his mind. And there's these two men and there's a girl. Now, I wanted to make this girl different from every other girl. Now, I can make her beautiful, I can make her charismatic, I can make her attractive. But I wanted to make her different, so I gave her an interest in radical politics. Now, when I first thought of the idea, everyone was sort of, um, oh, are you sure, radical politics, young people interested in that, bit 60s. But then suddenly, uh, students were marching through London, uh, people were throwing things at Prince Charles's car. I thought, yeah, she can be interested in radical politics. And she's the sort of girl that on her wall she doesn't have rock stars and she doesn't have film stars. She has Rosa Luxemburg and the Bader-Meinhof group. So she's very, very different. And, and the book is about how these three people over one summer get involved with each other and the the catastrophic complications that arrive from that. So I'm go just going to read you the very beginning of it, where Jamie, the, who's now 18, and he's looking back at a year, a, a year back, and he's thinking about his brother. I can't decide what to do with your ashes. It's been nearly a year now, almost summer again. The urn is sitting in front of me, on the desk, brown plastic with a reference number and the date and your name scribbled on a sticky label, Robert Julian Maguire. The label has black borders and is beginning to peel at the corners. I smooth the wrinkled paper, trying to stick it back. It's been slapped on crooked by someone who didn't care a whole lot about the contents. There are all kinds of urns you, ha you can have, brass, copper, pewter, ceramic. You can have a wooden casket with engraving on it. 
But those cost and someone would have to care enough to order one and buy it. I guess yours is the equivalent, modern equivalent of the pauper's grave. I went to the funerals. They held them one after another. I don't think they meant it that way, but the crematorium was busy that day. Yours was second, not much like the first. No orations, no weeping schoolmates clutching single blossoms to put on the coffin, coffin, sobbing out rubbish verses that they'd written themselves. No inky hand-printed notes on the flowers, R.I.P., see you in heaven, gone but not forgotten. No flowers at all. Hardly anyone there either. Only the, the bare minimum for decency. Police and immediate family. Some of your mates, but not many. Just Bryn and a few others wearing uniform. The priest was sweating. He kept dabbing at his forehead with a big white handkerchief and stumbling over his words, scratching about to find something to say, stringing it out until the time came for the rollers to engage. You would have pissed yourself. Nobody sang the hymn. There was just this tinny recording. Nobody cried or even looked sad. Congregation seemed relieved to see a coffin going, as if it wasn't a body on its way to the furnace, but some dangerous biohazard. They couldn't wait to get out there. I was the one who went back to collect your ashes. That's how I've got them here. Mum doesn't like it. She keeps nagging on about closure and, and disposal. Keeping you here is morbid and probably unhealthy. I don't see it. The Morgans had their granddad on the mantelpiece for years and years. She wants rid. But what's it to do with her? You are my brother. She doesn't have to come in here. It's upsetting your sister, she says. I know for a fact that Martha couldn't give a monkey's fat one. Anyway, she's not even here, so what does she care? I can see Mum's point of view. What you did was pretty disruptive. I had to move schools. I couldn't go back there, could I? Mum wanted to move house, move towns. After what had happened, she wanted to make a fresh start. You made the place toxic. But in the end, we didn't do that. We'd had to have moved gran Grandpa. Not that he'd notice, he's still alive just about, but Alzheimer's doesn't get better, does it? It wasn't really that either. What happened has changed her. At times she blames herself. Somehow it must be her fault. That's what she thinks. If she'd just done this thing or that thing, then it wouldn't have happened. She spends a lot of time sitting around thinking about that. She's there, but not there when she's like that. She moves from that, from, from that to being very, very angry, mostly with you. Maybe getting rid of you would give us closure, as she puts it, but I don't think so. The brown plastic kind of contains you. Without it, you'd be everywhere, like a genie. You don't deserve to be liberated yet. I'll decide the time and place. It could be tomorrow. It could be years from now. Till that day comes, you're staying right here with me. But this is not forgiveness. Don't think that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Celia. And uh, we will talk... We'll pick up on some of the things she's dropped. It feels to me like, you know, you must be on the cliff edge wanting to know what <laughs> happens next. Nick, would uh, you like yes. to do the same for In Darkness? Um, I should start by saying how privileged I feel to be sitting here with Celia, because <laughs> as an editor, as, as well as a writer, she's someone who I've been very conscious of for my whole career. And I have to say, referring back to your point, I'm guilty of doing a couple of briefs to our cover-up department saying, make it look like witch child. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, In Darkness um, is the story um, in sort of first-person narration of Shorty, who is a teenager from the slums of Haiti um, 
as we increasingly seem to be calling it, rather than Haiti. Um, and he, um, he finds himself trapped in the rubble of a fallen down hospital uh, in the or after the January 2010 Haitian earthquake, uh, which he presumes is an earthquake. In fact, he doesn't know, um, because of course he wouldn't. Um, and I, um, not quite as um, not, not not quite as interesting as Jules Jim, but I was watching the news um, about three or four days after the earthquake, and I had been like I'm sure everyone else horrified by the earthquake anyway, and I'd sort of always been interested in Haiti um, since I did a master's in linguistics, and there was a sort of module on <coughs> Creoles, and so it was a country I was fascinated by, and by its dark history, and it struck me as appallingly ironic that possibly the worst humanitarian disaster of all time had happened to this country that had such a sad history anyway. And then... As I say, roughly sort of three or four days afterwards, the news started carrying, as they would because they want a sort of light counterpart, stories of people who are being dug out of the rubble. But I thought there was something more interesting about it beyond it just being a sort of hopeful message, which, which was that I became fascinated by the idea of what that would actually be like if that was you or that was this building fell, fell down around our ears right now. How would we react and how would, how would you live through that and how would you survive and... So those people, a few of them were interviewed, and I watched them being interviewed, and they, um, they talked about the fact that they prayed, which seemed you know, interesting and fascinating, but didn't really answer the question. And, and then someone talked about the fact that, um, which I refer to in the book, that they got to the point where they couldn't distinguish between their voice as they were calling out for help and their thoughts in their own head. And I thought that was a really extraordinary idea, that you can no long, there's no longer that line between your inner thoughts and your outer speech. And so... Shorty, as he's, as he's trapped there in the darkness, um, starts to think about his past and his mind starts to spiral out of it. And I guess he starts to hallucinate it, you could call it, hallucinate, you could call it. And so not only is he thinking about his own life and how he's come to be in this place, and we learn that he's been shot in the arm and, and his story starts to answer questions about that and, and why that is the case. Um, but also he starts to sort of dream or hallucinate about Toussaint Louverture, who was... Uh, the great Haitian slave leader of the late 18th century, who, um, at the age of, I think, 53, um, completely illiterate, no military training, ended up uh, coming to the point where he led uh, the slave forces in the first ever successful slave revolution um, against uh, predominantly the sort of French slave owners, but also the British, who uh, saw an opportunity and thought, well, we'll go in, and he defeated them as well and defeated the Spanish, and just unbelievable achievement to, to defeat this vastly outnumbering, vastly out-trained um, force. And I guess I sort of... I. I wanted to write about Toussaint because I felt his story should be more widely known. He's this amazing kind of black Spartacus character who we don't learn about really in school. Um, But also I felt like the story was actually about him um, for some reason which I couldn't put my finger on that drove me absolutely mad until about sort of two or three weeks later I realised that, um, and this is a bit of a spoiler but not too much of a spoiler, that Toussaint uh, ended up being betrayed by the French. They lured him to this fake meeting and arrested him, brought him back to France, and he, in fact, died in a dungeon in France underground in the darkness. And so suddenly I saw that, in fact, you've got these two characters who, at some point in time, are kind of metaphorically in the same place. Um, and so they're sort of like that, and the only thing in between them is time. And I think, uh, to sound very pretentious, time can sometimes be quite a narrow 
barrier. So that was sort of that was the inspiration. Um, and like Celia, I will read you just the first two couple of first two pages. I think it's tricky, of course, because his voice is not my voice. But you'll have to imagine that I'm talking in a Haitian accent because I'm not going to try and put one on. <laughs> I am the voice in the dark calling out for your help. I am the quiet voice that you hope will not turn to silence, the voice you want to keep hearing because it means someone is still alive. I am the voice calling for you to come and dig me out. I am the voice in the dark asking you to unbury me, to bring me from the grave out into the light like a zombie. I am a killer and I have been killed too, over and over. I am constantly being born. I have lost more things than I have found. I have destroyed more things than I have built. I first shot a man when I was 12 years old. I have no name. There are no names in the darkness because there's no one else, only me, and I already know who I am. I am the voice in the dark calling out for your help. And I have no questions for myself and no need to call upon myself for anything except to remember. I am alone and I am dying. In darkness, I count my blessings like Maman taught me. One, I'm alive. Two, there is no two. I should say there is some hope in this bit. <laughs> I see nothing and I hear nothing. This darkness, it's like something solid. It's like it's inside me. I used to shout for help, but then after a while I couldn't tell if I was speaking through my, through my <clears throat> mouth or just in my head, and that scared me. Anyway, shouting makes me thirsty. So I don't shout anymore, I only touch and smell. This is, like, this is how I know what is in here with me in the darkness. There is a light, except it doesn't work but I can tell it's a light because I feel the smooth glass of the lamp and I remember how it used to sit on the little table by my bed. That's another thing, there's a bed in here. It was my bed before the walls fell down. I can feel its soft mattress and its broken slats. I smell blood. There is unpeeled blood in this place on me and all around me. I can tell it's blood because it smells of iron and death and because I've smelled blood before. I grew up in the bidonville. It's a smell you get used to. Not all of the blood is mine, but some of it is. Thank you very much. Okay, well, you get a sense of the kind of territory we're in, and this, there, obviously these are very different books, but there are clear similarities. And I think what I'd like to discuss first is, is you've both written books which you know, are, are definably tough, um, and uh, uh, books about young adults, and both written with these very powerful voices. Um, and... Uh, in both, you're dealing with young people in very challenging, difficult circumstances. Both are dealing with death, which, after all, we sometimes think is the one thing that nobody in our society talks about. So it's very interesting that you plunge, both of you plunge straight into that in your fictions. Um, and in both cases, the, the protagonists, and in fact all the young people, are in a way victims of the circumstance. They, they, these things have happened to them. I mean, one of the differences about young people and adults is this, who causes it? Why, why are they in these situations? Um, and uh, it's really about um, how those young people, what choices they can then make. And is that what adolescence is always about? It's about choices that you make, and it's a, it's a very fertile area for that. Adults make choices all the time, but in a sense, we know they do. But young people have things thrust onto them and then have to make choices. Were you aware of that? Well, I think, or why do you write about young people, maybe, <laughs> is the, is the um, sort of bottom to that? Well, I think, I, think, um, I think one of the differences between childhood and adulthood, and, you know, the, the area of the adolescent, of the young person growing up, this transitional 
point from childhood to adulthood is very fertile mm. and always has been for, for literature. It's one of the, I mean, if you think about it, protagonists in lots of, you know, like um, Jane Austen, the girls are often in their yeah. teens. Um, Tessa Durbeville, she's 17. You know, now, would they be young adult books? I don't know. Mm. But, but it's an area that people go back to, adult writers, and uh, even in adult fiction, go back to this period all the time. Because it's, it's a time when suddenly um, you, you realise there are choices to be made. Mm. And there are things that you could do or not you do. choose to do mm. or not to do. And choosing to do something or not to do it will affect other people. I think often children are, are, are victims, but they are helpless quite often. They can do nothing. They can do almost nothing. But an, a teenager has choices and can do things and can affect the world about him or her. But the world about him or her is still intensely more powerful. And it's trying to deal with that, trying to find yourself, finding yourself in the world, mm -hmm. I think, that, that, <coughs> that I find fascinating about about this period in people's lives and, and find fascinating to write about. Mm. And both of you use more than one voice, in a sense, to, to tell the story, but partly because it gives that idea of choices. Otherwise, you've only got one person. And of perspective, it, yeah, yeah. And, a, and a different way of, of approaching things. And I think what's also interesting about young people is that they're perhaps not as aware of the sort of significance and consequences of their change of their choices and I'm reading um, the sense of an ending at the moment that Julian Barnes book and there's an amazing line in that where he says something about how when you're a teenager you think that you're about to be released into the world and in fact you're already in the world and you've already made you've already acquired advantages and handicaps and you just don't realize it yet you've already made significant choices and I think that's really interesting. But also, I sort of I'm interested in people who I suppose I feel don't particularly have a choice. And so I wanted to. I'm interested particularly in young people and gangs, and especially young people who are growing up in an environment as Shorty does, where there's a sort of binary opposition between two gangs, who are more or less the same, and it's kind of arbitrary as to which one you join. But then you're defined by being in that gang, and you have to fight the other gang. And I sort of I don't really believe in evil, and I believe that if you're in that sort of situation it's because you don't have an enormous amount of choice and you, you're in this you're living in this world where someone comes along and offers you a sense of sort of belonging and family and of course you're going to take it because we're all human and we all want to feel that we belong and then it's a short step from there to shooting the person who belongs to the other gang and so I don't know what I'm saying I think, <laughs> um, <laughs> I think yes I think it's sort of an unawareness maybe of just how important those choices are but also to some extent, actually being limited in what your choices are. Yeah. But you offer more choices, in a sense, because you have three, three characters telling the story. I mean, there are different voices, three mm -hmm. characters telling them, three characters who've made different choices, and then you have the sister, Martha, who has made a fourth choice, a completely yeah. different choice. So, in a sense, you are exploring that quite carefully, mm. and you are those stories all go along, and we can see, obviously, there are some things like falling in love, which cut across the freedom, you yeah. could say, to make a choice. But actually, at bottom, they are all making choices. Yeah. Um, well, I chose to write... I wanted to write it in voice, in different voices. Um, 
partly because I became, came under the influence of Patrick Ness in this. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of authors are. We have a lot of novels in a lot of different but, no, voices at like, the moment. Yeah. No, directly, I mean, I was teaching with him on an Arvin course, and he, he, we were talking about voices, and yeah. I thought, well, why not? Yeah. Why not do it? And um, then I realised it, it is very liberating for the writer because it, it allows you to explore your different characters and you're not mediating. One of the, the things I think I find sometimes as a writer is I am getting in the way of my characters. I'm not letting them... I, I'm too busy w thinking about structuring the story or who says what or who happened. This didn't happen to this person, it happened to someone else, and who's, how am I going to tell that? Am I going to, to write in the third person? Am I going to shift viewpoints? Am I, am I, if I'm writing the first person, how do they know this is, that this is what the other person thinks? And it suddenly, all those complications disappeared, and it was, it was very freeing. And just allowed each of the characters to, to, to present themselves and they were, they're very strong and very different, so they needed their own voices. Mm. Um, and, it, and I think that's interesting about choices, because everybody has choices, and it's quite, it's quite clear. I didn't really think about it like that when I was writing it. But yes, people, and they, they have choices, and they discard one choice. They discard one thing they could do, and they follow another. And, and that's... That is interesting to pursue that mm. because sometimes it, it ends up in very dark and dangerous places, as it does in my book, as it does in Nick's book. Mm. Although Nick's book is slightly different because he has no, like Nick said, he yeah. has far less choice. Yeah. He has almost no choices. Mm. He does have little choice, and then he realizes that and knows that. And I think, to go back to your first question, that, um, that this is what maybe adolescence is about and growing up is about is realising yes you do have choices and you can choose to do one thing or another thing mm. and what you do will affect other people so you know the, the, there is graphic violence in both of the books and I know you want to get onto that but uh, <laughs> sorry I'm, I'm preempting that <laughs> but, but what I was struck about by in Nick's book is how these very young boys have guns and and mm. the ability to shoot people. Mm. Um, but the, there is a, a difference between... The, and it's the same with child soldiers, you know, that they, they are ruthless killers. Mm. They are terrifying because they don't think about what it actually means to shoot somebody, to mm. kill them. Mm. And, and I, I, think that's, I think that's when adolescence is a point where you start, hey, maybe it's not good, you know, mm. maybe... Maybe I can't. I'm not living in a fantasy. I'm living in a real world, and if I do this, it's going to hurt people, mm. and maybe it will hurt me as well. Mm. And I think that's that's what that's why the voices are important because they allow you into the heads of the characters, and for you as the reader to think, no, you shouldn't do that. Don't right. do that. But they do it. And okay. also, it takes away the judgmental adult voice. Sort of saying, this is not a good cause of action. This wouldn't because be a you're good plowing thing to do. on. Exactly. The narrator is telling yeah. you this as they see it. But now, just to go back to that point about the guns, Shorty is violent yes. and has access to arms, yes. but in an untrained way. Yes. Whereas, in a sense, what you've given is uh, you've robbed the, the, the army to yes. legitimise yeah. it. So let's segue into this yeah. violence idea this, that we are now able to write in books for young adults. Now, is that a reflection of the time, that because there is a lot of knife and gun crime 
it's okay, because you both actually are pretty graphic about what yeah. weapons do. I think guns, I sort of want to pick up on Celia's point about guns, because in fact, uh, slightly contradicting myself, there is a separate moral perspective in In Darkness, which is Toussaint, who, unlike Shorty, uh, makes what arguably could be seen as better choices. He you know, you, you might think that he would exact bloody revenge on the slave owners, but he doesn't. He very much encourages his troops not to do that. He realises they're going to have to share the island at some point. Um, subsequent leaders were maybe slightly less scrupulous. but And so he does present that moral counterpoint. But I think a big difference between him and Shorty is that he doesn't have access to guns. And, um, I mean, his army do, obviously, in the sense of more primitive guns. But I think that something that I found absolutely fascinating in Celia's book is is that sort of fetishization of the gun as an object. And Rob, who was an army sniper, talks about... that He uses sort of... The, I don't know what they are, but the names of the models of the sights and the calibers, and there's that whole sort of jargon of the gun, and talk about the feel of the gun in your hand. And, and there's that line from Homer, sometimes the blade itself incites to violence. And I've sort of always thought that as soon as you're holding a gun in your hand it's built to shoot that's its entire purpose and i think it's it's almost quite difficult if you if you're if you've got a gun not to shoot it i mean that's what it's for um, and objects i think that are built for a certain purpose will almost seduce you into into kind of carrying that purpose out and so i think that's another aspect of sort of choice and the absence of choice that i want to talk about i think celia talks about it much better and i was envious of how well she had it <laughs> but it's but there, there's something there's um I, I uh, emailed Julia about this. There's, I was reading a poem by Bob Hickok, who um, is a professor of poetry in the States, and he taught the Virginia Tech shooter. Um, and one of the lines from the poem is, this is what happens when a man's hand is on a lever, because otherwise, why the lever, why the hand? And I think that... I don't precisely know what I think it means, but I think there is something very significant about guns and the availability of guns in less so our culture, but more in American culture and the way in which that that results in violence. Yes, for us, we're probably at knives rather than guns. Yes, but, yes, but, but knives other, exert a similar... Yes, it's exactly the same. A if similar the knife is in the hand, yeah. I mean, that's why it's so dangerous. But uh, also, it's, as Celia describes it so incredibly sharply, um, the, the, the whole training of the sniper and their, that what they come to believe is that they are only hitting the designated target. And mm -hmm. that's, of course, very mind-bending in a sense. I mean, if you don't believe in the, that they should be doing it, it's quite disturbing to think that the whole training is a legitimization mm. of pulling that trigger because you are told you're only going to hit a particular target. And, of course, we know it's not quite yeah. as simple. I mean, I, I, think, I think it's a very interesting point that, that the difference between... Um, between a civilian killing, if you like, or mm. young people in gangs or whatever involved in that kind of violence and, and the heat of the moment. And, I mean, in the book, Rob is a sniper. He's a trained mm. killer, and that's what he does. And he just say, he says that, that's what I do. Mm. I, I'm trained to kill. And that's what the army does. I mean, you go to the army and they break the, you down and build you back up again. They have to do that mm. because most... Most young men, or um, women too, don't naturally want to go around killing people. And, and you have to actually train people to kill. And 
and it's really interesting looking at how, how, how people are trained and, and, and come to accept that they, this is something they have to do. Mm. And they have to do it without any kind of reaction, without running away, without panicking, without anything. They just do it. And they also have to see and witness and look after and care for the, the results of extreme violence, mm. of people being shot, of people being blown up, of all these sort of horrendous things that happen that we don't know about, we don't see. Mm. We don't see on the, on the TV. The, the camera goes away from it. But they have actually witnessed it and they have, you know, they, they've looked after their friends or they've looked after other pe uh, civilian casualties. Mm. And they live in a world that we don't know about. It, mm. The door is shut to us unless we are in that world. And I was really interested in that and how somebody who has been in that world and then is suddenly taken out of it. Mm. And you know, he's, just, he's got to reality. go back to a normal world. He's only 23. Mm. He can't return to the army now, mm. ever. Mm. And he's got to, to fit in somehow <coughs> into a normal world. And he's just finding oh. it hard. And the and thing he's best at in the world is killing people. Exactly, is shooting. Yeah. He's a brilliant, brilliant sniper. Mm. And, and he's fascinated, by, as, as lots of, lots of soldiers are, by weaponry and, and the Barrett, which is the... the, the best sniper rifle in the world and mm -hmm. it can kill it can a mile away and if you think about your if you're on top of this building and you could you could you could you could kill someone a mile away across london and they would not know that nobody would know they would just go boom and they they fall down and no one knows where the shot came from or what's happened and it's astonishing power mm. to think you could do that mm. and and it's very seductive and it's really interesting to see how all these things could be going on in one young man's mind. Mm. And, and it, it's very interesting as well that a lot of the... And it's true of all wars, but, but it's, coming, it's coming true of Afghanistan as well, that, that lots of the young men coming back are... Are mentally damaged. Yeah. You know that they, there's a lot. There's a high incidence of, 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 of drug abuse, of alcohol abuse, of suicide. And, and of, of mental health problems. Right, yeah. It's mm. almost surprising that there aren't more atrocities committed by soldiers returning from war. Mm. But then, as you point out in the book, not with Rob, but with other characters, often that violence is turned inwards and they kill themselves. And mm. that, that, that's quite a high instance of that. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, that's very true. Well, we're talking, we've been talking very much about sort of contemporary violence, but actually when you said about gang warfare, I suddenly image of uh, Romeo and Juliet flashed <laughs> through my mind. Do you think that actually what teenagers are going through now, now you've both written, you in Witch Child and you in here, in, in a, you've written two time frames, do you think that what teenagers are going through now is more challenging, more difficult, um, or do you think this period of, of transition has always thrown up great problems or... I think it's much easier now. I think you, you, it's much easier to be gay, it's much easier to not get beaten by your teacher at school it's much easier to not be white it's it's you know there are still problems but i i sort of feel with stephen pinker that the world has got better and less violent and less horrendous. and i'd far rather we were talking about this before we started but i'd far rather be a teenager now than a teenager going to normandy or a teenager about to be burned as a witch or a teen or any teenager peasant in 14th century <laughs> Europe. Or, yeah. yeah, or most teenagers at any, although, at any time. Yeah. Although part exactly. of the problem which Celia touches on is that we are lucky, but of course we have exported horror to 
other places like Iraq and Afghanistan where I wouldn't want to be an 18-year-old particularly at this mm. point in time. So part of, I think, the reason we are fortunate is that we've shunted that horror and violence away. Mm. But have we opened up something for contemporary adolescents by exposing them to, you know, or whether it's through the media or whether it's through them in a sense? I mean, are they, more, are they having to make more choices and more difficult choices or probably not? Celia, having written Witch Child, um, where a young girl has to make very difficult choices, yeah. what would you feel about that? Well, I, it's, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible. It's like, it's like when uh, sometimes I'm talking in schools and, and someone says, which period of history would you have liked to live in? And I always and say, no, <laughs> really. Because, you know, if, if I cut myself, I've got this antibiotics. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, you know, this ample food. This, you know, it's, it's much easier, the world in some ways. But, but in other ways, there are difficulties and complications that even 20 years ago we had no knowledge of mm. you know things like social networking facebooking mm. you know cyberbullying mm. the, the 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 explosion and availability of pornography mm. on the internet and and all sorts of things that 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 are insidious they're not like kind of you know life-threatening mm. but i think they make young people's lives far more complicated yeah. than they ever have been before and so yes they have to make lots of Choices. Mm. They might not be huge choices, but lots of small choices that are even more difficult to negotiate. I think it's very difficult for young people today to negotiate life. Um, you know, sometimes when there's, there's a choice between living or dying, starving or, 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 or eating, then that's a simple choice. But mm. these are immensely complicated. But and I'm suddenly that's again difficult. in front of me when you because you talked about uh, Tessa the Dervilles and how young she is. Um, and I haven't thought of that. So very interesting. But you know, think of what happened to her because of poor communication. I mean, you she know, had a the, mobile phone, no problem. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, but exactly. But it does, it, problem solved. Yeah, but the problem was created by communication in their time. I mean, I just think it's very, uh, just as a reference, it's just very interesting. The text that didn't get through. Yeah, exactly. It was a different form. I think you make an interesting point about Facebook as well, that it's there's almost a difficult, there's an issue of presentation, I suppose, which is that how you presented yourself just used to be whether you wore Converse or Docs and whether you Mm. had spikes in your hair and now it's how you It's your entire lifestyle. And everything you say and do online and yeah, it's it opens up a lot of, but then, but on balance, I think I'd still rather be a teenager. Yeah, than I agree. <laughs> I'm almost more nervous about the way that the adult world is shifting to become more teenage, and the way that sort of women are pressurised to look like teenage girls, and and there's sort of almost a fetishisation of youth and teenage culture in our society in general, really. But that could be quite good for teenagers. It could yep. be quite hard for adults. Now you've both you've both written about violence, and you know that is one, and, and you've both written about death very profoundly and movingly. And as I say, that's a you know five years ago people would have said, oh, you can't do that. Now you take another taboo, which all right, you got it from Judah Jim, but I mean you have got two brothers screwing the same girl. Now that is <laughs> quite uh, difficult for mm-hmm. a teenage book. I found it quite. I have to say, I found that quite difficult having teenage sons. Um, I thought they would find that quite difficult. Um, I was very interested that you chose to do that. Well, I, when I decided I was going to write a contemporary fiction and not historical, I decided, I, and I, I thought, right, okay, this is a chance for me to, to actually nail some colours to, 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 to the mast and say, 
I really do believe that, that older teenagers should have their own literature, that it's not something that um, I know it creates headaches for the publicists in my publisher, publishing house, but, you know, it, I don't, didn't want this book to be for 12-year-olds. I wanted it to be really for the people. It's the, the, the 17, 18, the, you know, the two, most of the characters are 17 or 18, and I wanted it to be for, for that age group, or maybe a bit, little bit younger. So I knew to do that, I'd have to... And I, I also wanted it to reflect real teen life, you know, it's where people swear and people have sex and take people drugs. take, you know, they're, they're not kind of mainlining heroin, but they take, they take recreational drugs at the weekend. You know, they, they go out and they get absolutely hammered and stagger home. And... That's what they do. Mm. And it's not exceptional or weird or anything. That's just what they do. They swear. Mm. Not all the time, but they, you know, mm. do swear. And um, they have sex. Mm. Um, but I wanted... The reason I, I... I didn't actually think about shocking Julia Eccleshire <laughs> or anybody, really. Um, I'm only worrying about my sons. <laughs> or, 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 or um, leading your sons into moral turpitude. <laughs> but uh, I... I wanted to, sh to to make this relationship sharp, really yeah. sharp, um, and and also to. I'm interested. I mean, I suppose all writers are in in fami familial relationships sure. and rivalries between brothers, yeah. and they are very different. Yeah. And and the younger brother is always, you know, he's been. He's not exactly bullied, but I mean, I had an older brother, and sometimes he was nice to me, and sometimes he wasn't nice to me. Mm. You know, and and there's always the wanting to please your brother, mm. and not they're not believing he would do that. You mm. know, he, you know, you can't, and that utter betrayal. Mm. And I wanted. Uh, to, to sharpen and focus, really, really sort of fine focus all the emotions. Mm. So making them brothers did that for me, really. Mm. What's clever, though, and I think, is that ultimately the betrayal is not sexual. The real betrayal is sort of philosophical. Yeah, absolutely. Which is interesting. And that's yeah. why we don't get bogged down in the brothers bit. Yeah. Um, but it's very, in a funny way, it's very lightly done. It's just there. If you, 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 you could almost sort of not have to notice it if you didn't want to. But the ultimate portrayal is about the life choices, yeah. and you have the opposite of a very strong family bond. Um, you know, with, with with Shorty and his sister. Yeah. Um, who so, is taken um, from him? Who is taken from him? So this this sense of how the family fits into the wider picture is a very important part of. Although this very dragon. clean book, no sex. No sex, no sex in the <laughs> People but get shot in the face, but no. Sex. <laughs> yeah, it's quite violent. Yes, it is. It's, it's quite violent. Um, I mean, both in the contemporary and in the historical, which I think is a very you know a very important balance to it. Well, I think we've covered quite a lot of territory, and I think we've thought quite a lot about the kind of meat that you can put into a proper a book for a, a proper book, a book for real older readers. And it's a very interesting part. It's such a growing part of the market. I think I read more teenage books now than I have ever read in my life. It seems to me the range of what we're offering young adults as readers is very exciting. And it seems to me we, we are, in a sense, perhaps respecting them more than we ever have. And trying to find ways of showing them, as soon as just very cogently put, showing them the world in which they are growing up um, without making it look uh, strange or, or anything. Um, and yet we have this difficulty because you're not allowed to say certain things in books and you're not allowed to say too much about uh, various activities. But anyway, so now over to the audience. If anyone has a question they would like to air or um, just to pick up a particular point on either of these books with the authors, 
over to you. Put your hand up and we'll send around the mic. Right, question over there. Could we take the mic to the man at the front? Thank you. Yes, I'm a, a school librarian, a secondary school librarian in Sussex. So when, when I buy books for the, from the fiction side, I have to be very careful about mm -hmm. what, because they're the people who use the library go from age 11 right up to age 18. So you just have to be a bit careful about what you buy. What I was going to ask though for both authors here yeah. is the, the market seems to be awash at the moment with fiction that present teenage themes within a paranormal or supernatural dressing. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that it's better to provide teenage themes within a, a straight contextual uh, conte or contemporary setting or to dress up to make it slightly more palatable by putting it in these sort of vampires, werewolves, ghosts <laughs> thematic stage. What do you think? Well, I've, I've ri I have written books with vampires and not werewolves I don't like werewolves um, I, have, I have issues with werewolves partly because as a writer where in, in werewolf most werewolf fiction they turn into a wolf and they, it's a bit like kind of I don't know um, like a superhero they burst out their clothes so and then they kind of rampage around doing werewolfy things and then they're found somewhere they're always somewhere with no clothes on I mean what do you do how do you get them back when you, you, you know I just can't be doing with that but um, I have written about vampires and I've written about ghosts um, and I've written historical fiction and I guess um, I, I, what I hope and what I think is important is that that Fiction for teenagers should be a broad church with many different strands to it, just as fiction for adults is. And that you do have, um, you do have fantasy and you've got, uh, you've got paranormal and you've got all sorts of different types of books so that people have got wide choice. What worries me a bit is that, that because of the, the um, I suppose, the pressures of the market, and, and the way books are, are publicised and, and the, the way books are, knowledge about different types of books are spread, that if you're not careful, you're going to have it swamped with one kind of book. And that is dangerous. You've got to have lots of different kinds of books. I don't really have a, any problems or issues with, with books about, about anything. But I do think that, I do dislike some, some types of, some ways that the markets have gone. Um, as a, as a writer who has a history of writing about strong girl characters, I don't like girls being victims, really. Not in the victim way that we've been talking about, but as, as, as kind of sexual victims. Sexual victims. Um, and I think, I think one of the dangers, which has to be, I mean, it's great, it's fine, but I think it has to be counterbalanced, is that quite often um, fantasies, for, for, and I would put dystopian novels into that category, cast the reader and cast the teenager in a hero role and and, and they you know they, they with one bound I was free and they, they seem to be invincible they can you know they can use sort of different weapons they're, they're fantastic and they and, and I think that in a way yeah it's great escapism but it is also needs to be counterbalanced with another type of fiction which doesn't which is much more realistic <laughs> Nick 
I don't think I can add anything to that, really. <laughs> I think um, I agree. I, I think that there's room for all kinds of books, and I should probably answer this as an editor rather yes. than an author. Um, and, you know, I'm all for a kind of Catholic spread of different genres, um, and I commission lots of different types of books. And actually, I think it's worth saying that those books are not necessarily unpalatable and uncommercially successful either. I mean, it's Instance of the Dog in the Nighttime or Boy in the Striped Pyjamas or on the adult side, books like Room. These, these are non-paranormal books that sell huge numbers of copies because they touch on something universal and bring out an emotion that people can identify with. Like Celia, I get slightly bored by the books that are just the same book with different character names. So at the moment I'm getting bored by people living under domes and other people living outside the dome <laughs> post-apocalyptic dystopian romance but you know again especially when they come in trilogies yes <laughs> but i think that you know generally the free market tends to dictate that there will be lots of different kinds of books and i think that's all to the good and to throw it back as a librarian i'm sure you would agree that you want your students to have a wide range to read from and Indeed. to have that choice we, we tend to run um, book awards that are focused on year 10 and year 11, so 15 and 16 year old book awards rather than the lower end of the market or the sick board. Mm. So we try and encourage teenage reading at the 15 year old stage or so, yes. Thank you. Next question. Somebody was given the mic. <coughs> yes. Um, yeah. I, I think this follows up quite naturally. I'm reading about people living in their domes <laughs> at the moment and um, I read a lot of children's literature and I studied at university and I'm obviously coming quite late to these books because I figured I should just read them just so I should kind of be up on pop culture. Um, and they're all right. I think they're better than some other ones that have been very successful recently. Um, but I just wonder, especially as a publisher, how you feel um, the importance of success of books like those fits for teenagers in terms of if they've never read something before or gotten really into something and then this hugely successful series comes out and they become quite excited about it, how as librarians or publishers or writers do you then lead them to other books that might be better written or a bit more thought provoking but play on that excitement? I think those books are incredibly important in that sense even if they're not going to be classics. Mm. I, um, how you move on. Yeah. Ironically, the most criticism and flack I ever got in my publishing career was um, I am responsible for those editions of Tess the D'Urbervilles and Pride and Prejudice that look a bit like Twilight with the flowers. <laughs> so, some of you might have seen them and I literally had people coming up to me and saying, people who were librarians, uh, and saying, how dare you do this, and you know, you're devaluing classic literature, and I thought, you know, we're doing precisely what you just said, which is leading, you know, teenagers from Twilight, which specifically referred to those books, which was the whole root of the idea, which wasn't mm. my idea, I hasten to add, um, although I executed it, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I thought that was very odd, that, that that was the thing that got the most kind of, you know, we've published 
sexy books and violent books, but it was when we dared to put contemporary covers on the classics that we got into trouble. And yet, surely one of the jobs of uh, that that you know all books do is lead you to another book. And well, one quite. of the exciting things, you know, what, whatever one may think about the individual books in this case for teenagers, but for you know whether it's true with, with, with the same is true with younger readers. Anything that in, that sparks lights, you know, that that that. that, that yeah, one of the people who criticised me said. But most of them won't read it. And I thought, well, some of them will. Isn't yeah, that kind exactly. of the point? Um, exactly. Yeah, it, was, it felt like I was living in a topsy-turvy world. Yeah. Except there is a difficulty. Celia and I were, in fact, discussing this before. There is a difficulty about this, the big successes somehow driving underground the books yeah. that we know are better. And how mm. do we raise yeah. their profile? Yeah, and I think that's more what I'm, I'm trying to ask. I mean, yeah. like everyone, I think, who's a reader reads books that are just for fun. Mm -hmm. um, sure. And just because you want to find out kind of what happens next in the story. Um, but you probably won't hang on to them and reread them again over and over and get something different out of, out of them every time. So, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's not a good answer, but I, I just kind of wonder how you, as, as writers and publishers, relate to those books. And, and you know, do you see a value in them? Like, As a publisher, books. I see a big value. In them. <laughs> <laughs> they make us lots of money. I think, as writers, everyone sees a big value in them. Wouldn't you yeah. agree? I mean, yeah. in the sense well, that anything that makes right, you know, reading. Seem yeah, I, th more I think. Um, I think yes. It, I mean, I think you've identified the the answer yourself. But I think that anything that uh, that that will attract teenagers to reading or children for that mm. matter because reading is and we all know that I mean we're all here we're writers we're we're, we're publishers we're uh, book professionals and librarians and different and book booksellers and we know that the book is under pressure and we want to we want to make sure it stays in in its very very important pole position in our culture because without books I can't imagine what there could be a culture. So anything that encourages young people to read, and the, all the other things they've got to do, all the other distractions and the other kind of uh, 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 media that, that they have access to, um, is, is very important. The, the, the problem is this, is this step change between, say, reading all of Twilight or, and all, then all the kind of Twilight spin-offs or all of this you know, I, uh, Hunger Games, and because they tend to go in series, and, and they kind of, you know, it's going to be about that thick by the time you've, you've stacked them all up. The important thing is that they, that you want to be able to, for them to move on to either a different, different kind of fiction, maybe, or other people writing in this genre, uh, and whatever. But that's, it's that step change that is difficult, and it's one of the things that you know. I personally, um, I don't know how many how many librarians have we got here now. Put your hands up. Um, right. Well, I think that librarians have a huge, hugely important job because they are the people who can say, "If you like this, you will like that." You know, why don't you try this? They know their readers, and they know what they they got. They know when they're ready to move on to something else, and and I. You know, I, I really regret that, that that kind of mediation is disappearing um, from young people's lives. Because otherwise they're going to get stuck in just reading, going backwards and forwards over the same ground and never, never going on. Although I think there's a lot to be said for, for reading for fun as being a positive thing for literacy. And 
people become literate by reading for enjoyment, mm. not by reading dictionaries or books about phonics. Oh, yeah, the next more difficult. I, when I was 11 or 12, spent most of my time reading Raymond Chandler, who was mm. dismissed by a lot of critics of the time as being pulpy, and mm. I loved it, and it got me where I am. <laughs> the microphone, perhaps you could pass forward. Oh, sorry, I didn't see you minding it. Sorry. I think a oh, yes, all right, question over there, and then we'll come back to you. Hi, um, whenever I'm asked what the difference between um, young, young fiction and older fiction is, it's, I think it's the reader's hindsight. You know, that children don't have hindsight. And teenagers are in a funny place because they do. And I was struck by when you were talking about violence, about um, how I think teen, teenagers, they're in a place where they're wondering about power. It's about whether they have power or no power because adults have power and they don't. And which brings me to Dick's book where uh, you've got Shorty who has no power because he's poor and he's young and so he goes into guns and then he's got a parallel life with the other boys, Toussaint, Toussaint who's, uh, who's the leader of a revolution, who has, who has power because he has wisdom. Mm. And I wondered whether you two could talk about power and powerlessness and young people. And you're Candy Gawley, aren't you? Mm. <laughs> Very fine author. Have you uh, claimed your five pounds? Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk about um, Yeah, I, well, that, I think that's a very interesting point. It's certainly also a very interesting point about Nick's book because what struck me was the parallel. I mean, it was a, it was a fine paralleling. I mean, you can read books where people parallel, you know, the, the, the future, the present with the past. And they're actually kind of, they're really kind of pulling the focus to make it fit. But what I, what I admired about your book was the, the exact, how exact it was. Because although Toussaint, is it Toussaint? Toussaint, yeah. I Toussaint. think. Well, but although he's, he's a slave, he's a successful. I mean, it's astonishing, astonishing achievement to have a slave rebellion at that time, which is successful, and they take over the island, and they establish a government, and they, they were never really deposed, were they? I mean, people had goes, but, you know, it, it stayed, it stayed an, an independent black state. But ultimately, he's powerless too. He is tricked out of any power he has, and he's taken away, and he's humiliated, and he's left in the dark. And... And I thought that was very interesting about, and, and it st expanded it out from just being about, you know, a, a Haitian young boy to being about, about a, a, the state of, of, of black people in a way that they could never get exactly what they wanted. They were always going to be, if they, if there was always, and he was aware of that, but he, they were always going to be fooled and tricked if they were not careful. And I thought, as well, what, what was incredibly um, impressive about him was that he did not use extreme violence. He didn't wipe out the, black pe the white people. He didn't kill everybody, which he could easily have done. Mm. And I think, I don't know whether it's to do with age, though, because he was older, or the sort of man he was, because I can imagine in another, another leader would have done the opposite, would have just slaughtered everybody. Yeah. But it would be much more likely to bring down, you know, real serious vengeance on his head. So I think it's, it's not just a matter of um, age. It's also a matter of character, you know, that different people, from childhood to adolescence to adulthood, people will have different characters. 
and personalities and, and the way they react to things are radically different. And I think when you're writing literature for young people, that's one of the things you want young people to understand. That all these people have, could do, the, the same things happen, but they do radically different things. Mm. Mm. And I think that's important. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I do agree with the distinction between the two kinds of literature, because that's something I've thought myself, that children's literature or young adult literature is sort of about being in the tunnel of youth and looking out, whereas adult literature featuring a young protagonist, you can tell the difference because mm. it tends to be looking back on mm. with a sort of degree of perspective. I think, um, yes, I, uh, I, I was sort of talking about lack of choice and I guess powerlessness is another way of putting it, but I do, I'm interested in the way that giving a little bit of power to someone who's powerless can result in dangerous consequences. But also, I suppose... On the point of violence, I'm interested in consequences, and I, I write about violence essentially because I don't like violence, and, and I want to sort of... I'm quite influenced by Michelle Haneke, the filmmaker, who often uses scenes of really shocking violence in his films deliberately to kind of counteract that Hollywood sort of cartoon violence, and I think that... Um, what I strove to do, at least, I don't know if I did it, but what I wanted to do was show that, um, as Celia kind of alluded to, that the choice of violence leads to really terrible consequences, and for shorty it leads to really terrible consequences. He doesn't get away with this, as it were. He sort of he makes these choices, and they have repercussions that last for an awfully long time, and um, maybe that's a difference between him and Toussaint is that Toussaint is better able to see those consequences lying ahead should he go down that route of just slaughtering everyone. Um, but yes, I mean, it, it's, it's... So power is not something I'm sort of conscious of, but certainly very conscious of the idea of, of what it means if you kill someone. And I, I sort of... I'm not a huge fan of films and literature where people are just killed in sprays of bullets and it has no kind of no resonances and no ripples that go on into the future well I think it, I think it, those are the books where large numbers of people are just killed um, and there's no kind of you know consequences or they're not explored or uh, you don't really see what's happening and it's just it's just a way of getting from one thing to another and they're just enemies and bad people so let's kill them all um, I, I think I think it, it it allows the reader a get-out. It allows the reader not to face, not to look and see and face the consequences of what happens when these things occur. And I think that's, you know, that, that's fine if, it, if it's that kind of book. But I think there need to be books where people, are, you, you know, you're forced to look full on and this is what will happen. If, if, if people act in this way, this is what it looks like. And these are the consequences for you, for everyone around you. And it allows people... Um, to not have responsibility because you could, they can say to themselves well, they're not real people, they're Jewish or they're Protestant yeah, exactly. or, they're, or not, they belong to the wrong you. gang. Or mm. Can you have a microphone here? Yeah, um, if we sort of walked in here and not know this is about um, young adult fiction and we both know your plot lines, I think you could be um, mistaken for thinking they could easily be transposed to any sort of um, sort of awards-based adult, adult literature, adult fiction, uh, adult sort of literary novels. And you know, we've, had adult, uh, we've had sort of literary novels recently featuring, featuring young adults uh, that have been hugely successful, that sort of yard building, etc. 
So I guess my, my question is, what are the exact sort of tropes of young adult fiction that make it young adult fiction? Um, because obviously the, the themes and the plots could, I think, could easily be transposed um, into sort of more uh, into what you might call adult fiction. So I'm interested in what what makes YA fiction YA fiction. Okay, what makes YA fiction? We've had some. We've just aired some of that. I think about this. Uh, lack of hindsight is a very important point. Let's have three points quickly. Um, well, I think it's it's where it's just, where your you know, where your publisher places your novel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I think, as far as I'm concerned, I consider myself to be a writer, not a writer particularly for children or young adults, but a, a professional writer. So I can talk about literature or fiction on any kind of level. And, and I st I'll go back to what I said, I suppose my starting point was that young adults deserve their own fiction. And it can be literary, it can be, it can be popular, it can be in lots of different genres, but it's just for them. Yeah. Hey, anything, Nick, from...? I think... Um, I mean, this is actually, interestingly, In Darkness was also published as an adult book, wasn't it? Yeah, although yeah. I'm not sure who I wrote it for. I mean, I didn't consciously write it for either adults or young adults. I suppose I would reiterate my points about looking out or looking back in, and I think I've read The Art of Fielding and I loved it, and I think part of what makes that an adult book is that it's about, I can't remember the name of the character, but the president of the college who's and his kind of burgeoning awareness that he's actually homosexual, and that, I think, gives it a very adult slant rather than being told from the young adult perspective but I think I don't know is the short answer <laughs> because as Celia said that kind of cusp of transition that kind of liminal point between being a child and being an adult has always been a rich vein of literature in not just uh, books like Jane Eyre but also Catcher in the Rye and things like that which are about that moment of transition so I don't know. How do you know whether those are adult bits or young adult bits? I have no idea. I think we're going to leave it there. Uh, it's a bit of a kind of edge to end on, and I'm sure there are lots more questions, but I think it's a very interesting point. We don't know, but we know at the moment that this is a wonderfully rich theme of publishing for, for us and for the writers, and I think it's a very exciting time for anyone to be reading or writing in this period. Thank you, Celia. Thank you, Nick. And thank you very much for being a wonderful